Welcome to Arise Church, where we exist so that you can experience God. I pray that this message will encourage, inspire, and grow your faith in God. Enjoy the message. So I, I've been blessed, so, so, so like, like, like um, I've been blessed to travel the world and see some pretty amazing things over the course of, of, of ministry specifically, and things like the pyramids in Egypt and the Nile River and, you know, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, the pyramids in, in Mexico, uh, just all over the world. I've seen all kinds of uh, neat things that are kind of on people's bucket lists. Uh, I've always said in the United States, one of the coolest things to see or one of the most beautiful places on the planet Earth that I've ever been is, is kind of the Grand Teton and Yellowstone area. Anybody been there? Okay, right, I'm, I'm just, I know I'm pastor, but I'm just gonna be tour guide for you uh, for a moment. So we discovered this a few years ago. Ada and I uh, were up in a, a trip and we went to Bar Harbor, Maine, where it is where Acadia National Park is. Who's been to Bar Harbor or Acadia? Okay, so you see, it's always the less people. I'm throwing you a bone right here. I'm helping you out. Because here's the deal. If you go to Yellowstone and Grand Tetons, it's stinking expensive, man. It's, it's expensive to fly out there. That's a long way away. You gotta rent a car. You gotta do all that stuff. This is on our coast. And it is gorgeous. It is beautiful. I'm not saying it's quite Yellowstone or the Tetons, but Ada and I love Acadia National Park. And so when you're planning your summer trips, uh, do that. Don't go in the wintertime. It's not even open. You got 12 foot of snow. Nobody wants to deal with that. But it is gorgeous. And the reason why it is so gorgeous is because um, you get these mountains. You kind of see them here. But the mountains are right there where the, where the beach starts. So it goes ocean straight into mountains. And even into the ocean right there, you will see that there's little um, islands that that are mountains all over. And so it's an island, and it might be a really small island, like the size of this building, a small island, but it shoots straight up in the air. So it's really beautiful, really cool to go see. And, um, and when we were there last time uh, talking uh, with a tour guide in Acadia, uh, they started talking about how it was formed, and they talked about how tectonic plates that were unstable, uh, these unstable tectonic plates shifted a long time ago, and it, you know, created mountains. And that's generally how mountains are formed in general, but created these mountains. And, and so here you go straight from the beach, straight up the mountains, beautiful landscapes, islands that are mountains in the water. It's awesome. It's beautiful. You should go see it. All right, everybody good? Yeah. Like you want to go see it now? All right, I did my, my tour job. You know, you can tip me later. I'm just teasing. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> but then there's also sometimes that the insecure tectonic plates can cause massive problems. Right. So instead of causing beauty, it can cause destruction. Like in 2004, the day after Christmas, when the massive Titanic plates underneath the Indian Ocean shifted and literally killed 250,000 people, made a 100-foot tidal wave, a tsunami came through. Uh, 9.2 on the Richter scale, it was incredible, caused an, an incredible amount of damage. And I just wanna say this as we start. We have tectonic plates underneath what we see about somebody. Like I know you came in today and you're wearing your cool shoes and your nice church outfit, some of you better than others. I love our church because somebody looks like they're going straight to the beach, flip-flop shorts, tank top. Somebody else is like dressed to the nines. You're all welcome here, I love it. Um, but, but underneath all that, right, underneath your cool Levi's jeans and your, you know, your, your Jordans or whatever, underneath all that that's invisible to the naked eye are tectonic plates in your life. They're called your thoughts. They're called what goes on in your mind. And they can shift. And if they are unstable or insecure in what they are, they can shift. And when they shift, they can become incredibly beautiful when they shift, or they can become incredibly destructive, right? And so we get these, what, what I would call fault lines, right? Fault lines of insecurity that, that often live just underneath the surface of our lives. And these are important because they will keep you sometimes from, from, from doing certain things. So, <coughs> forgive me, keep you. So what'll happen, and this is really what we wanna talk about this morning in this particular one, is we get these critical voices in our minds that speak to us and they're hypercritical of everything we do and everything that we are and they, they speak against us so often and what they will end up doing is actually once they get in our minds, they'll take away from our belief in ourself. Not our belief in God as much as our belief that God can use us which is, has serious consequences as well. And oftentimes you get alone, you get at night or in these different places and, and these voices come out to play so to speak. They start criticizing you. You lay in bed and you hear all these inner critiques. Am I talking to anybody? Yeah. And you hear all these inner critiques that start playing out all over your mind and you gotta burst those bubbles and that's what we wanna do today is burst some of these bubbles. And they often sound like this. You're not good enough. You're a fraud. 
If people really knew you, they wouldn't like you. You're going to mess around and lose everything. I never do anything right. I constantly say the wrong things. I can't do this. I only have bad luck. I should be better than I am. Nobody cares about me. I'm not smart enough. Hmm. Does anybody relate to those kind of voices? They speak into your life and they're seriously negative most of the time. In fact, many of us suffer from what's called the imposter syndrome. Uh, Back in 1978, they were doing some research, specifically studying women at this point, and they studied women and they found that successful women oftentimes looked at themselves and thought the whole thing was luck. I'm not really, I shouldn't be successful. Um, If people really knew me, they wouldn't put me in the positions they're in. And they thought it was just a woman thing until they did further research and they found that it was just as bad with men. It's just men hide it a little better than women, right? Men don't want to see below the surface. They hide their technology tonic plates a little better, but we all struggle with it. And the imposter syndrome is a psychological phenomenon in which people are unable to feel worthy of their accomplishments. You see this all the time with, especially with successful people, but it's really everybody, that when you're successful, everybody will look at them and think, oh, they got it all together, and, and wow, they're amazing, and they're great. And, and on the outside, they may portray that, but on the inside, there's all these insecurities that if you really knew who I am, the truth is I'm just lucky. I got here by luck. I got here by, by and we, we get all these inner insecurities that start rising up and it's the imposter syndrome. It's something that I deal with. I think a lot of people deal with. In fact, they say that about 70% of people will deal with the imposter syndrome at some point in your life. And so these, these inner fault lines of insecurity start shifting, thinking I'm an imposter. I don't really belong here. And, and that's a big deal. Um, and it'll start affecting everything we do. We start not believing in ourselves. I, 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 when I was studying this some years ago, I remember reading this. Uh, this person was talking about they were in an a, um, entrepreneur of the year for the global community. So this is a prestigious thing, right? These are business owners, entrepreneurs, globally who all come together for this giant award for entrepreneur of the year around the globe and that's probably not the official title but you get what I mean and and this guy was he's leading this business that had done all kinds of good and he's sitting at this table and he's got a hundred employees or whatever and he's sitting next to somebody else who has five thousand employees and he's like oh my gosh who am I like why am I even here I, I don't I don't deserve to be here and and then they start this conversation and what they find out is that every person at the table every one of them thought the same thing like, oh my gosh, that guy's amazing, but not me. If they really knew who me, if they really knew my accomplishments, like that's not me, that guy's amazing. And every one of them was thinking the same thing about the other person. Isn't that ironic? That's how the imposter syndrome, that's how it works. And you see this all the time in our society today. Like I say, about 70% of people uh, deal with the imposter syndrome. Uh, It comes in all kinds of ways, and one of those ways is that critical voice that starts speaking to you. I've dealt with this all of my life, I feel like, um, but, but, but I can tell you in my world how it often plays out. Sunday morning will look like this. I'll come up and I'll speak a message in this church or in South Shore or or wherever I'm at, which location, or even in another church sometimes. And I'll speak a message and I'll be like, oh, that was was pretty good. Okay, I did all right. And usually afterwards, you guys are awesome and you're super encouraging. And almost always people are like, oh, that was powerful. That was awesome. Literally uh, this morning after the first service, somebody comes to me, they're crying. Like this was life-changing. I needed that so much. They're crying, they're weeping. And I'm like, that's awesome. About three o'clock, I don't know what it is about three o'clock, but by the time I get home, all the insecurities and all the inner critical voices start speaking. And I'll usually ask Ada at some point on the way home or at some point, I'll ask Ada, I'll say, so so how was church? Which is really cue for how was the message? I don't care about everything else, I just care about, you know. And Ada will say this almost every week, oh, that was so good, that was so good. And my initial thought every single time is this, she has to say that. She's married to me. She has to live with me. If she, if she says it stunk, she's gonna have to live with me and grumpy all day and she has to say it was good. And there's probably some truth to that, right? I, mean, <laughs> I guess you don't t- technically have to, but, and I'll start that. And then as the day goes on, especially when you're tired, which is important to recognize that there's gonna be moments and triggers where this is gonna be worse for you. And so I'm tired on Sunday. So I get home by three o'clock and beyond, I start criticizing everything I do. Oh, I should have said it this way. I should have done it this way. Oh, if I had just done this, right? And I start criticizing everything I do. And I'm not even a perfectionist. If you're a perfectionist in this room, you got it way worse than me. I'm not a perfectionist, but I will start this inner critic speaking. Oh, I can't believe you said that. Did you hear what you said? 
Go back and watch that live stream. You sound like an idiot. What are you doing? Right? And I'll say things, and, and y'all know, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're new to our church, I just apologize off the bat, because I just say things. I don't plan half the stuff I say. I mean, I sort of do, but, but I also just like say things. And, and sometimes I say stupid things. Is anybody old enough, like you've been around long enough to remember the five o'clock service back in the day in the little old building? My goodness. People loved it, but anything came out of my mouth because I got tired. That was the fourth service of the day. I was tired. Anything just came out of my mouth. There's God only, if we got video or audio of those services, they need to be destroyed. There's no telling, no telling what. But, but, but this is what happens with a person with an imposter syndrome, and you know all about this, because it doesn't matter how many accolades your boss gives you. You're amazing, you're great, you're doing a great job. When you walk out of their office, you're like, yeah, they don't really know, and I'm really not doing that great a job. And, and you start self-criticizing, no matter what somebody else says about you. Your spouse can say you're the most amazing husband, most amazing wife, and you can't receive it because you're so critical of yourself. Are you with me? Can we take this a little bit deeper? I believe that one of the reasons, maybe not the only one, but one of the reasons for the current speed of life is because of this same predicament. So we in America love to talk about our schedules and we're so busy, busy, busy and we're busy all the time and I'm the king of busy, I know all about busy and we're busy running, 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 running and there's probably a lot of reasons for that but I believe personally that one of the reasons why we are so busy and always running is because when we stop, you stop focusing on what's out there and you have to focus on what's in here and a lot of times those insecurities are not comfortable to think on or dwell on. And as long as I'm focused on an action and what I'm doing, and I'm out there doing something, as long as I'm focused on that thing, I can do pretty good. But when I have to slow down and I start thinking about me, that's uncomfortable. That, that, that's an inner, inner insecurity, some tectonic plates shifting within me. It's very uncomfortable. Can anybody relate to that? And it's easy, I'm pretty good at being a human doing. I'm not that good at being a human being. Like just being, my wife is awesome at it, man. She'll go to like God and just like spend time in God's presence and just sit in God's presence and, and wallow in it and, and speak in tongues for five hours and just pray and seek God's face. And she's awesome at it, man. She comes out, she got tears everywhere and hair melting and stuff, you know. She's like glowing her face like Moses. I'm not good at that, man. I want to do something. I want to like go conquer the mountain. I want to lead a charge. And I want to, right, you know, I want to do something because if I get quiet in God's presence, sometimes he starts working on me and that's pretty stinking uncomfortable <laughs> if I can be real, which is why in my world I have to strategically plan it into my calendar. So I have things because it's not my natural tendency. I have to plan prayer retreats. I have to plan, you know, tonight is restoration room. I have to plan restoration room. I have to plan these things in my calendar to make sure I can sit still and be in God's presence and let him work on me. But sometimes the quieter we get, the louder the inner critic gets, which is your first point. Critical men or voices come or can be the loudest when life is the quietest. <laughs> so these critical mental voices, they start getting really loud when I get quiet. And that's, that's un comfortable because here's the truth I know how to do those things I, I kind of have all these titles and hats that I wear you're the same way I'm just using me as an example but you're the same way right I have this pastor hat I know how to be a pastor I'm not saying I'm the best at it but I know how to do it I know how to be a leader I know how to be a father I know how to be a husband I know how to do these different titles that I wear I'm relatively comfortable in those titles but when I get rid of all of those titles when I'm not pastor Brent or maybe soon to be dr. Brent when I'm not all these things all of a sudden I step back and look at myself and go who is just Brent not dad, not husband, who is Brent? You face those same things. Different ways, same thing. Because sometimes we get so caught up in our title and an identity that comes from our title, which is ultimately an insecure place, that that title, when we lose it, we don't know what to do. You've all seen this. Let me give you a scenario. Mom. Amazing mom, loves the kids from the time the child is born, there for the kids, feeding the kids, clothing the kids, taking care of the kids, loving on the kids, sending them to kindergarten and crying, sending them to first grade and crying, sending them to second grade. Come on, moms. My mom just had a birthday. I sent her a Marco Polo video. She starts crying in the video. Okay. What is it about moms? You just cry automatically. But they cry, and so they're, they're crying all through childhood and loving those kids, and, and, and their mom, their identity is mom, and then all of a sudden the child goes to college and leaves. And mom sits on the couch and goes, who, who am I? 
My whole life has been taking care of a child at some season of age. Who am I now? For a lot of the guys, and these are stereotypes, but you get the idea. For a lot of the guys, it might be your business title. You, you, you worked your way up the ladder and you became supervisor or manager or, or superintendent or principal or whatever that title is, the VIP title, and you worked yourself into that position and all of a sudden, it gets taken away from you. The company goes under. You get fired. Something like that happens and you sit down on your couch and you go, who am I? Without the title, who am I? Can, can I tell you a ministry secret? This is the part where you talk back. <coughs> so, so I work with pastors doing church consulting and all that kind of stuff that I do. And sometimes I work with pastors who are preparing for retirement. And one of the things I always have to talk about with them and, and so serious is you have to find a new identity when you're not pastor so-and-so. Because for most pastors, they've been pastors for 30, 40, 50 or longer years, like a long time. And their identity is so wrapped around this title, which is kind of a place of influence and a, a place of leadership and standing up and preaching and people coming to them, that all of a sudden when you retire and people just kind of let you retire, who am I? What, what do I do when I'm not pastor so-and-so? It's a huge problem, but it's not just in ministry, it's across the board because we wrap ourselves in identities that ultimately are insecure, and so when the tectonic plate shifts, we sit back and go, who am I? And those inner voices, as we get quiet, start speaking to us. You sit down on the couch, who am I? You're worthless, you're nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. Your best years are behind you. You've ruined this, you've messed up this thing. And all these voices start talking when you get quiet, and so what do we do? We just get busy again and we mask it, it becomes a coping mechanism. Now, there's this guy in the Bible who dealt with this, I believe. I'm gonna share this story in a way that you probably haven't normally heard it shared, but he dealt with this, and it's gonna be kind of weird because of all the people in the Bible to deal with this, he's gonna be one that you wouldn't think would deal with it. It doesn't make sense. In fact, this particular person is one of the heroes of the Bible, and most heroes of the Bible had some kind of falling or issue or you know, David had you know, Bathsheba or whatever. Like Most of them had some kind of thing. Like This guy had nothing. Like He was like squeaky clean and, and good, and, but, but, but maybe this kind of speaks to this inner insecurity that starts speaking. If you want to turn there, you can go to Matthew chapter 11. But this guy's name is John the Baptist. He's not actually Baptist. He just baptized people. It's John the Baptizer. Kind of like this morning, he's baptizing people. And John the Baptist was a rock star. He was a rock star on a level that we have a hard time comprehending how amazing he was. He was so prophetic, he was prophesying while he was in his mother's womb. Y'all know the Christmas story? Jesus comes near, the baby leaps, and we give the mom all the credit. Listen, that baby, John the Baptist was already prophesying, hey, that's, that's the Messiah right there. He's just like kicking mom, like, see, right, mom, right there, right in the belly, right? Kick, the baby leaps in the belly, right? That's, that's, that's John the Baptist, bro. He's amazing. And, and so he starts growing up, and as he grows up, man, he gives his life fully to God, Fully. He gives his life so fully to God. We, like you learned this in Sunday school a long time ago, but you gotta comprehend this. He gave his life so fully to God that he ate locusts and honey all the time. Get, get that Sunday school version out your mind. That is disgusting. <laughs> you know, if God called you to eat locusts and honey, like, like you better know that God called you to do that, first of all. Second of all, <laughs> that's gross, God, why? Seriously. Which, by the way, it's like always locust and honey. Why is it honey? Because locusts are nasty. And at least you could eat some honey with it and maybe get rid of the taste of the locust. That's my guess. I don't know. But you always seem to eat locusts. Locust. So, so he's out there. He's, he's abandoned for the faith. Man, he is all in. He's willing to do whatever God has called him to do. He's all in. And he has this entourage that starts following him. Man, he's got, uh, in fact, he's got more disciples than Jesus, at least early on. In fact, some of Jesus' early disciples came from John the Baptist's disciples. Not only that, he has this incredible calling. He's, he's, a, he's the prophet of the Old Testament that has one foot in the Old Covenant of the Old Testament and one foot in the New Covenant of the New Testament. And he's straddling the fence on both of these and he's this incredible character and everywhere he goes he's drawing crowds and he's baptizing people he's the first one to preach the kingdom of God 
Jesus came after him preaching it, but it started John the Baptist is the first one that we hear preaching this New Testament, this new revelation of grace. And he's straddling this Old Testament law and New Testament principles, and he's bringing the two together. And John the Baptist was incredible. In fact, the historian Josephus, that many of you know if you know your history, Josephus wrote more about John the Baptist than he did Jesus. John the Baptist was a rock star to the point that when Jesus comes down to get baptized and he gets out of the limo and they roll the red carpet out for him, then John the Baptist proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the first one to recognize publicly who Jesus even was. He's gonna baptize him and have the honor of baptizing Jesus. It's an honor to baptize these guys here today, but John the Baptist baptized Jesus, y'all. I guess that's how you get Baptist at the end of your name, right? <laughs> you baptize Jesus, you get to keep the Baptist name, right? And so, so he's incredible, he's incredible. Crowd's going, he's a, he's, a, he's a hail and brimstone preacher. Sin is wrong, hell is hot, get right with God. Crowds following him ever. I think, I think John the Baptist was the first true Pentecostal. Because Pentecostals in general, we don't do good with quiet either. We like it loud and expressive and high energy. In fact, most of you in this room, for many of you at least, you would love it if I just preached on it. And God said, you better get up and tell the devil no. And you better tell him to get behind me. So y'all like that. <laughs> See, Pentecostals, man, y'all are weird. And so... See, are loud, man. Y'all want it expressive. But, but, but sometimes we want it so loud and expressive because we actually are too shallow in the times when it's just us and God. So we mask our shallowness with a loud shout. <laughs> it just got real, didn't it? <laughs> and so sometimes we can mask our lack of depth with a lot of, <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> I got the Holy Ghost. And, um, <laughs> and so we can mask what's an inner tectonic plate that's not shifting. Jesus was one who was constantly healing the sick, raising the dead, you know, all these things that Jesus did, publicly preaching and these public things, but he was also running quietly by himself to get alone with God. There's gotta be a balance there, Pentecostals in the room. There's gotta be a balance there. It's not just all a shout on Sunday morning if you can't go read your Bible by yourself on Monday. So, so John the Baptist is this sort of kind of Pentecostal type picture that he gets crowds everywhere he goes, like Jesus did. He gets crowds everywhere he's going. He's preaching the gospel and he's probably like many of us running from thing to thing to thing. If you could see John the Baptist's calendar, it probably looked like block and block. His Google calendar was like, man, he was just running thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And then he makes the mistake because he's always calling out everybody's sin. He's all about repent, repent, repent. And he makes the mistake of calling out the sin of a politician. Forget the politicians backfire. If I start saying stuff about politicians in the room, half the room would want to stone me. Don't touch my man. He ain't never done nothing wrong. Anyway, so John the Baptist starts calling out this politician named Herod Antipas, and he starts calling his sin out, and Herod says, yeah, that's enough of that dude. So Herod throws him in prison. You with me so far? And you got this guy who's been running, 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 preaching, 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 eating, eating locusts and honey and all crazy and preaching and running and going and baptizing and doing all this. Suddenly now he's stuck in a prison by himself. He seems to have some disciples that come to and fro a little bit, but he's in a prison, dark, dingy, haired Antipas, prison. There, there's nothing that will make you start doing introspection faster than going to jail. Some of you know that way too well. You know that way too well. That one night changed your life forever or that six years, whatever it was for you. But <laughs> no, Nothing will make you start doing introspection like getting alone in that cell. And you start focusing on yourself. And you got nobody to blame when you're alone. But John the Baptist gets alone and now he's in a cell by himself. And it's interesting what happens. Watch this. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to eventually read 2 through 14, uh, but for the sake of right now, we're going to read the first two verses. We're going to read in three segments. He says this, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, that's Jesus, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Wait a minute. This is the dude that publicly proclaimed in front of everybody, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
in front of everybody. When he's in front of the crowd, he was bold. He was audacious. In front of the crowd, he's like, this is the Messiah. He gets by himself. His own inner thoughts. He's going, um, did I miss that? Because Jesus, you do know I'm about to be killed, maybe. And if you're really the Messiah, maybe you should go to the throne faster so that you could take care of me. It's probably what's really going through his mind. It's interesting because John the Baptist is not doubting Jesus. He's doubting himself. <laughs> He's really not doubting Jesus because you're about to see Jesus is going to answer with the same reply he already knew with the deeds. He's, but he's not doubting Jesus. He's doubting himself. I don't know about you. I don't really struggle with faith in God that much. I struggle with faith in me. I don't really, I don't really struggle with non-belief with God. I struggle with non-belief in me. I can trust God, but I'm not sure I can trust me. <laughs> I know that God can do anything, but I'm not sure that I can do what God says I can do. Are you with me? See, I believe God is great, but I'm not sure he's great enough to use me in that way. And oftentimes, we're not really doubting Jesus. We're doubting ourselves. You see this throughout the Bible, people that constantly start to doubt themselves. Even the story of Peter walking on water. Peter gets on the water and starts walking, and, and, and he gets condemned by Jesus as why you have little faith. But he's not talking about faith in Jesus. He's talking about faith in himself that he could do what Jesus said you were going to do. It's his own lack of faith that he it's the faith in himself that he could do what Jesus says you could do. And I think many of us don't struggle with disbelief in God. We struggle with disbelief in ourselves that we could do what he said we could do. Because yeah, right. <laughs> we don't see ourselves the way he sees us. And so you see this all the time throughout the Bible. You could go case by case in, in lots of cases, almost every case probably. But you got Pastor John who, who, who once believed and now he's questioning himself. You got people like Moses who would stand before a fiery furnace or I'm sorry, a, a burning bush and he would stand there and say, and say, 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 God, not me. Maybe you should send somebody else to the extent that he says it over and over until the last time. It's hilarious. The last time Moses literally says, God, please send someone else. It's hilarious. Go read it in your own Bible. It's hilarious. He's like, he's made every excuse. God, I can't speak right. I can't lead right. He's made every excuse. And now it's just like, God, please send somebody else. Not me, God. Not me. He's doubting himself. He's not doubting God. God, you can send somebody else. I'm really good about having faith for somebody else. Dude, I got faith that Pastor Jason can do amazing things. I'm not sure I got it for me all the time. Why? Because that critical inner voice. Gideon, Gideon, the angel comes to Gideon. Gideon says, I'm the weakest in my clan. I'm the lowest. I can't be used. Sarah says, I'm so old. Me, me and Abraham ain't been together like that in a while, angel. You know, some of y'all, anyway. <coughs> there ain't no Viagra back then. <laughs> Sorry, was that too real? <laughs> Paul's like, I'm a church persecutor, man. Like, God, you can't use me. You don't understand, God. I have destroyed the church my whole life. I've been killing people. You can't use me, God. And it's not a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of faith in ourselves, oftentimes. Peter's like, Peter's like listen, I've denied you three times, Jesus. You could probably find somebody better than me. Jesus is like, no, nah, I think I'm gonna use you. You with me? Oftentimes, it's not a lack of faith in God. It's a lack of faith in ourselves. And when you get alone with your own thoughts, these deep insecurities begin to reveal themselves. They're like ghosts coming out of the closet when you get alone as a child. And all of a sudden, these things start coming at you from all over the place. And these critical voices start speaking to you from all over the place. And it starts when you get quiet so often. And that's what John is facing. So why would God command us to slow down? Why would God want us to slow down? I mean, he put a Sabbath right there in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Why would he do that and force us to slow down if it's so painful? Point number two, if you're taking notes, if you listen, the Holy Spirit is also speaking during quiet times. If we can train ourselves, it's not just the negative, critical voices that we have to burst, but there's actually, they're bursted by a, a prophetic voice of God that's speaking over us. Verse four through six, if we're gonna continue reading in Matthew 11, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear. So John's like, hey, is this really you? He says, go back and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's an old Isaiah prophecy that he's saying, listen, I'm fulfilling this prophecy. You can see clearly what this is. You can see that I am, that you, you did it right the first time. Your announcement that I'm the Messiah is the correct one. 
And God oftentimes will slow you down enough to hear his confirming voice. His confirming voice. That's why the psalmist would say, be still and know that I am God. He will slow you down. The problem is that we've trained ourselves with a coping mechanism to run instead of slowing down. And the coping mechanism is now never allowing us to actually heal. And so then at some point in your life, you hit what's referred to as a midlife crisis, which often is the child went away to school. Who am I now that I'm not a mom like that? I lost my job or I lost this place. I I was the entrepreneur, I was the business owner and all of a sudden I lost the business. Who am I now? And you hit this midlife crisis where you stop and look at yourself and say, I don't know who I am anymore. My life was built around this thing that's gone. But Jesus didn't rebuke John. It would be interesting because I would have think that Jesus might rebuke John because John's showing a lack of faith. Jesus rebuked other people for lack of faith. And so why didn't Jesus rebuke John? Why, why didn't Jesus, why, why wasn't Jesus like, hey, like, like you need to get, get right, John. Like, like, man up, come on, man, come on. Oh, ye of little faith, you know who I am, you know me. They grew up together, don't forget that. They're cousins. The old singer Carmen used to have this joke. He said, he said you know, at some point it became a revelation to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah which probably also went, that's why I could never find you when we were playing hide and seek. <laughs> so there was an intimacy there. there was a, they were cousins, y'all. And so, so, so like, is there a moment that Jesus wants to go, hey, you have little faith. Come on, you know better than this. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he encourages him. He redirects him. He builds him up. And I would say that he does the exact same thing to you. Sounds like this. Brent, I chose you, and I chose you because I can use you. I know you don't always feel strong, but don't feed off of your emotions. Feed off of my word for you. I am with you, and I am your strength. I have ordained you. I have anointed you with my presence. You may not be enough in your own strength, but I am enough for you. Let me be your strength. Lean into me. Lose yourself in me. Let your insecurities fade away as you find your identity in me. You are enough because I am enough. Now go lead out of my strength. You have my favor on you. I am pleased with you. So why would God lead us? Why would God lead us in this this way of slowing down like this? You know, it's funny because we oftentimes celebrate God's blessing or what is apparent blessing in our life with prosperity. So I got a new job. Somebody just told me great testimony in in Main Street a minute ago. They said they were offered a job. They're kind of new to our church since uh, Easter. They said they were offered a job in Orlando, better job, blah, 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 and they were gonna take it, but they said we just love this church too much. We prayed and said, no, we're gonna stay here because we don't wanna leave our church. That's a testimony unto itself. First, second part of that testimony, they said, I'm just gonna believe that if it's God's will, they'll figure out a way for him to work from here. You know what happened? They gave the testimony this morning. They just got the call. They figured out a way for him to work from here. Beautiful testimony. So we love these testimonies of like, I got a raise. I got a, I got a, I got a new job. I got a new house. I got a new, and we love those kind of prosperity testimonies. But what if, what if it's actually God's will sometime that he actually removes something from you so that you have to do introspective work on yourself? Some of y'all ain't ready for this. What if it's God's will that he actually took the job away from you because you made your identity in the job and not him? And we're like, God, why did you do this? Why did you curse me? And God said, I didn't curse you, I just blessed you. You gotta learn how to receive the blessing of God when it might look unfamiliar at first. When, when, When Ty was a little boy, he broke his femur. They say that's the hardest bone in your body to break. And Ty's an overachiever, so he broke it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and broke his femur. That's, that's the bone right here. And so he breaks his, breaks his femur. And so they, he had to go in a full body cast. It, it started right here, went all the way down one leg, went to here on the other leg, and had a bar in between so that his legs couldn't move. Okay, if he's an adult or older, they would just do a surgery, but because he's so long, young, they said it and stuff. And so um, I really think this might be the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life, Period. They're setting him for the cast. Thank God he doesn't remember this. He's gonna have to have sozos and healing and all this for this for me. But, but they're setting him for the cast, getting prepared for the cast. And they call me in and the doctor says, I want you to hold him down. 
So literally, he's a three-year-old just screaming and screaming bloody murder because he's in so much pain. And all he can see as a three-year-old is that dad is hurting me. And that was killing me. But I recognize I had to hold him down. And I'm holding him down and I'm keeping him from struggle so they can fit the cast on him and get it all where it's supposed to be. And you gotta hold his leg as still as possible. Holding his leg that's broken is incredibly painful. And I'm actually causing him pain, but the pain is what was gonna bring healing. And he couldn't see it. And it was killing me as a father. Is there times that God actually might be bringing you pain that's actually for healing? And we wanna reject the pain and say it's from the enemy or say this or that, but the truth is like maybe God took that job because your identity was found in that job. Now I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm just saying we have to look at things in a different perspective sometimes. And in our busy lives, sometimes God will slow us down. We get sick, we get whatever the sickness is, we go in the hospital, sometimes maybe that's God's blessing that you actually sit in that hospital bed and you have no distractions but you have to look inward. You get sick and you're laying on the couch for three days and you can complain about it or you can look inward and go, all right, what's going on inside of me when I'm forced to slow down? Sometimes the blessings of God can be what appear to be painful on the, in, on the inside, on the outside. So, oh, and all these voices are going after you. Which voice will you submit yourself to? The critical voice or the voice of God? Because it will determine your future. Which voice you submit yourself to will determine your future. So which one will you submit yourself to? Your mouth is powerful, you know that. You have to be a person that can speak the word of God over yourself, not just me, not just your spouse, not just somebody else, but speak the word over yourself to contradict what the word is saying. Your mouth is incredibly powerful. You have the ability to bless and to curse out of your mouth. Blessings and curses come out of your mouth. That's what Proverbs said, y'all with me? But it's not just what comes out of your mouth, it's also what thinks in your head. Uh, I was thinking about this a lot recently because of a situation I was in and thinking about what's the big deal about cursing? Like, what's the cussing? What's the big deal about cussing? You know, like, why do, why do we get so upset about it? You know, I'm not saying not to. I'm just saying I was processing why. Because here's the truth. You can cuss in another language and I would not get upset because I don't even know you do it. Think about that. So it's not the actual word. It's gotta be something deeper than that. And so I'm processing. I came up with multiple answers for that kind of in myself. But one of those answers is that you have the ability to bless and curse out of your mouth and your mouth is powerful. And we used to even use that word cursing. Now we say cussing most of the time, but you say cursing. And you're either cursing another person or another thing or an opportunity, and you're actually cursing something by what's coming out of your mouth. Your mouth is powerful. And you will eat the fruit of either the curses that come out of your mouth or the positive things that are coming from God. Which one are you gonna eat? Which one are you gonna eat? This is why music is so powerful. In fact, somebody came up to me afterwards after the last service and they showed me those word clouds that show um, you know, how many words are used and they like look pop culture, Christian, uh, rock, country, whatever, all these genres of music and the word clouds. And you gotta be careful the stuff you're singing. I don't know who I'm talking to in this room, but sometimes the stuff you're singing, like you, oh, I would never say that, but you'll sing it. This is why worship music is so powerful. Because your mouth is powerful. Be careful the, the, the stuff, not only that you let in your mind, but you actually sing out of your mouth. That's a whole other message. I gotta get going. I'm losing some of you. You're already a golden crowd in your mind. Number three, God is not only speaking to you, he is also speaking about you. This is powerful because I love the idea that God is speaking to you. We talk a lot about that, man. We're charismatic Pentecostal people. We believe the Holy Spirit speaks. We do whole series on this. God speaks to you. Awesome, amazing. But think about this for a second, and we're about to see this in the passage. God may actually talk about you sometimes too, which is kind of cool. Like, I can't prove this, but you know, God's a relational God, and he's outside of time, so he has enough time as he needs to be able to talk about you. So I wonder if God doesn't sometimes go like, man, that Makia, she's doing such a great job as a single mom. I'm just so proud of her. I like got God and the Holy Spirit and the Jesus, like they're all like the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. like they're all talking, talking to angels. Hey, Gabriel, have you seen that girl? Like, she's just killing it, man. I'm just so proud of her. Have you, like, you wonder, does God like ever talk about you? It's interesting. Well, the answer to that is yes, and we're about to see it. So, so let's just keep reading. It's pretty cool to me. So carrying on in the story, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. I'm about to talk about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those were fine clothes 
are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, a, and more than a prophet, this is the one of whom it was written about. I will send a messenger ahead of you and will prepare a way for you. Verse 11, let's just stop here for a second. We're almost done, so don't, don't stress. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of a woman, there, have not, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Just pause for one quick second. Let me unpack this. There's a lot of truth and uh, profound revelation in this. Truly I tell you, any, uh, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Pause. That's pretty obvious. I mentioned it a second ago. John the Baptist has one foot in the Old Testament, one foot in the New Testament. He becomes a bridge between the two. He's the one who's paving the way for the Messiah. Yes, he's the greatest Old Testament prophet is what Jesus is saying. And among those born of women, that's a funny phrase, isn't it? Who's not born of women? I know we live in a weird society right now with a lot of weird, but you're born of women, okay? But among those born of women, how else can you be reborn or be born? born of women, born of the spirit, okay? Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. First of all, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So John is great. Anybody have an issue with that? John is great. That's what Jesus is saying. Anybody have an issue? Speak now or forever hold a peace. Here's the thing. Most of us have no issue with that because we're talking about somebody else being great and our inner insecurities taken away from me, but put it onto them. They're great, not so much me. But watch what Jesus just said. No one's, no one's better than John, or greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Some of y'all have never really processed this. I can see it. Your gears are going right now, like smoke's starting to come out of your nostrils. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, what's the kingdom of heaven? I'm glad you asked. The Old Testament, you have the kingdom of Israel, the Israelite nation. You have the kingdom of Israel. It's the old covenant. In the New Testament, you have a new covenant with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It's synonymous. It's the same thing. So you have the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in the New Testament. You with me? So if you are in the New Testament, if you are saved by grace, not works, if you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then you are part of the kingdom of heaven, which is also why you have some who are born of women, that would be the Israelite nation, born through a lineage of people, and then you have those who are reborn through the Spirit, who are now in a spiritual lineage of people, who are now part of the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? So, who is in the kingdom of heaven? You are, I am, right? If you are saved, now if you're not saved, you're not there yet. We're gonna work on that in a second. But if you are in this room and you are saved and you are a New Testament believer, you are part of the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it say? Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's pretty great. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Elisha. He's greater than, than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven... Whoever is least in this room, because I know there's somebody in this room you're like, I'm just nobody. I'm just, it's just little old me. I just go to church. I just love Jesus. I just serve a little bit here or there. I'm just, but I, I'm just a nobody. I know there's a few of you like that in the room. And he said, whoever is least, that's you. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. When God talks about you in the new covenant, in the new testament, he says you are greater than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was greater than every other prophet. That means, follow with me, you are greater than Moses. You are greater than Abraham. You are greater than Elijah. You can call fire from heaven. You are greater than Elisha. You are greater than Gideon. You are greater than all of those Old Testament figures that we look to, that we honor, that we hold in high esteem. Jesus is talking about you. And he says, you are greater than all of those people. You are. You are. You are. If you are in the kingdom of God, you are greater than John the Baptist, who is the greatest of prophets. If you are in Christ. So what do we do? We got to stop listening to the voice of the inner critic. Stop accepting and submitting ourselves to that voice. Listen, you don't have a right to say anything over yourself that God's not saying first. You don't have a right to say anything over yourself that God's not saying first. You are bought with a price. You are a new creation. You are not your own. I don't get to choose what I believe about myself. I have to submit myself to what God says about me. And he just said, you are great. You are awesome. Come on, stand up with me around the room. So what is, what is God saying about you? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. He says you are loved. He says you are accepted. He said you are a child of God. He said you are a friend of God. He said that you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are the living temple of God. The walking, talking, breathing, mobile tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle of the temple of God. You are God's presence here on earth. You are awesome, baby. You are part of Christ's body. You are a saint. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are complete. You are whole. You have not been given a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. You have direct access to God. You have been chosen. That's who you are. That's who you are. So, so, so how, do you, how do you do this? How do you do this? So here's the thing. You have to speak back to the inner critic using the voice of God. <coughs> speak back to the inner critic using the word of God. That was Jesus' model. The enemy comes, right? The devil comes to tempt him. He speaks back with the word of God. So you speak back with the word of God, but you need to speak it out of your mouth. Everybody's been in one of these situations before. I was on a flag football team a number of years ago, and this guy got mad, testosterone's going crazy, mad at the referee, and he starts yelling at the referee and the guy there. He said, you don't know who I am. And he's going off on this referee. You don't know who I am. At some point, you got to look at the enemy and that inner critic and say, you don't know who I am. You don't get a right to say who I am. You don't get a right to judge who I am. You don't get a right to make it seem like I'm not who God says I am. I am God. I am love. I am chosen. And we start combating the word of the inner critic with the word of God. And you speak it out of your mouth. And you win it over. It takes the word to combat the word. It takes the word to combat the word. Woo! Let me ask you this question. Do you believe in you? Because God believes in you. God does. But do you believe in you? Because oftentimes the issue is not our belief in God, it's our belief in ourselves based on what God has said about us. And we end up surviving rather than thriving. We end up never being a full habitation of the presence of God. We end up not being all that God has for us because we're so concerned with what we're not that we're not recognizing what he says we are. It's not recognizing what we says. So do you believe in God? Do you believe in you? Because God believes in you. There, there's these crazy stories. I shared a few of them. The Bible's full of them. Moses, burning bush. God, use somebody else. God basically says no. Moses goes on to get rid of those insecurities, becomes the great leader, lead a million man march out of bondage, receive the Ten Commandments. Gideon says, I'm the weakest in my clan, ends up leading 300 to attack 30,000 and winning. Paul says, I'm a church, church persecutor. I'm the last one you want to use. And God's like, no, you're exactly who I want to use. He ends up writing two thirds of our New Testament. Peter says, I've denied Jesus. God, you couldn't use me. I've denied you. I'm not the one. And on the first day of Pentecost, the first sermon to ever be preached in the history of the church is from Peter and 3,000 get saved. The Bible is full of people that start out with an inner critic saying, you can't do this. That God turns it around and says, you can do it. You just have to trust my word greater than your word. Do you believe in you? Because God believes in you. So what does Jesus say you are I would say slow down and listen you said you're not good enough but I say I am good enough and you are in me you said you're a fraud but I say you are forgiven and my friend you said I never do anything right but I say you are my righteousness. You said I can't succeed, but I say you can't fail. You said I'm a failure, but I say you are a success. And I've had enough of those critical voices. I care about you. I love you so much that I gave everything, everything. I was tortured and crucified just so that I could have a relationship with you. You may have bad moments and feel that nobody cares for you, but that is not true. I love you. I care for you. 
and I prove it by the never-ending grace I give you. I cared for you in the worst parts of your life. I cared for you when you didn't care for me. I cared for you when no one else seemed to care for you. Never ever think that no one cares for you. I care more than you can comprehend. I care. I love. It's time to let those critical voices go and listen to what I am saying about you. Real quick, we're, we're about done. Just, just, if you will, lift your hands. I want to bless you. Father, around this room, I recognize the authority that's been placed on me in this position, that I am the father of the house, so to speak. And identity comes from fathers. So God, right now, in the name of Jesus and the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, I declare blessing over this room. Every lie that has been spoken, every lie that's been believed, the voice of the inner critic that fights inside of our minds and wants to control us, I shut the mouth of the enemy in the name of Jesus. And I pray that there's a moment of peace in our busy, hectic lives where we hear and recognize your voice, both what you are speaking to us and what you are speaking about us that you are speaking directly to our spirits, but you are also speaking about us in the word of God. Give us fresh revelation. Show us new things. And God, I pray that we would be people that would not just have a faith in God, but a faith in who we are in Christ. That we are the children of the new covenant, that we are in the kingdom of heaven that we are therefore greater than John the Baptist who is greater than all the Old Testament prophets. So Lord, help us to live up to the high calling that you've placed on us. And we refuse and I bind and cast out every spirit that would try to criticize us in our minds and those thoughts and I replace it with the very truth and word of God. We choose to partner with you and not our own inner critic. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing and sharing this on all your social platforms? If you are moved by the message and would love to share your testimony, please email it to amen at myariseChurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged. See you next time.